0: Today's sermon text is going to be that familiar, most familiar passage in John's gospel, starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. We'll go John 3, 16 through 21. Today's sermon text was given to us straight out of the depths of Of the deepest fountain in the universe the heart of God it was given to us by the Holy Spirit given to us through the pen of the Apostle John but it was given to us for a reason and if this paragraph wasn't in the Bible we could go to other places to find the same sorts of expressions and truth but few places if any so explicitly clear This passage was given to us so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we would have life in His name. Now, over the course of the last month, I've heard plenty of challenging stories of things going on in the lives of Christians and plenty of discouraging stories of stuff happening around the world but I want to tell you a quick story before I read this passage and pray because I believe God is one who loves to commandeer good news and give us categories of what he might do in our hearts in these moments here's the quick story in the month of November I know 15 college students who gave their life to Christ all of whom were baptized in the same church on the same Sunday three weeks ago because they heard a Bible study about God's love. And I wonder, though I assume most in this room are already born again, you're here because you already know and love Jesus. You know what John chapter 3 and verse 16 especially is about. But I don't know if that's applicable to all of you. And just like those college students who were saved over the last month and baptized just a few weeks ago because they heard a Bible study on God's love, I just want to simply say to you today, God loves you. John 3.16-21 I'm reading from the New American Standard. Listen to God... Love you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light "...has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested." as having been wrought in God. Now I'm going to ask you, for your benefit and for mine, and because we're all going to go home in just a little while, I'm going to ask you to join me in real prayer. You silently, I'll lend my voice on our behalf, but I want to tell you before I pray what I'm going to ask God to do. Remind you of something you've heard about billion times but cause you to believe it deep in your bones more than anything else you're banking your eternal hope on join me for real prayer before God's face before we dive into this text oh God would you protect me from the seduction of trying to say something novel and new don't let me say one new thing Don't let me say anything that these precious people haven't probably heard many, many times. But I do pray, God, that You would do through what Your Word teaches in this passage, what You did for Lydia by that riverbank, that You would open people's heart to believe through the message preached. Would You cause me to say faithful things from this passage? And would You dispatch the Holy Spirit to cause hearts to believe for the first time and those who have believed on Jesus already to be thrilled all over again with your love for us wash us in your love now we ask in Jesus name Amen one quick observation about John 3 16 and following that some of you have seen before I just want to say on the front end, just an observation about this passage is that there's debate about whether or not these are the words of Jesus or these are the words of the Apostle John. We know they're the words of the Holy Spirit either way. They have the same weight and importance and gravity either way. But... In the New Testament times, when they used the language in which the New Testament was written, Greek, they didn't have quotation marks to say this person started talking here and they stopped talking there. So sometimes it's a matter of, of uncertainty. And so scholars are divided on this portion of John. Is it continuing the words of our Savior from verse 15? Or is it an introduction to John, no doubt under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? giving his own meditation. Well, either way, whether John is citing the words of Jesus in verse 16 and following, or he is writing under spirit inspiration with his own meditations on God's love, the point of the passage remains the same. Now, I want to tackle it from two angles today, verses 16 and 17, and then verses 18 to 21. First, The love of God and second true love to God it always happens in that order first God's love to us and second our love to him we've used the illustration that came from the the brother who discipled me until he died in the year 2000 I've used the illustration so many times from his poetic verse our love is but a rising mist created by that rush which plunges to the rocks beneath and sanctifies the just. The just are made just to sanctify the Lord within our heart, that our love may be a testament to love's exquisite art. One way to know for sure that you are living underneath the waterfall of God's love is a reverberating, irresistible Love back to Him. So first, God's love to us. And second, our love to God. Verses 16 and 17, the love of God. God so loved the world. You've heard verse 16 before again. I've prayed and I'm now striving not to say anything new to you. Nothing novel. I want you to look at verse 16 again with a prayer-filled heart. And I want you to see three aspects of the love of God. The measure of God's love, the objects of God's love, and the intention of God's love. Look at the measure of God's love. The meaning of verse 16 is not complex. It's well-trodden territory for good reason. It is so beautifully, simply, straightforward. The measure of God's love But before we just presume that we can understand the Bible on our own, or because we're good at reading sentences, let us remember that it's easy to misread, to misunderstand, to misapply what is very straightforward and clear. If you put lenses on your eyes and you read verse 16, Assuming that love means sentiment, sentimentality, you will grossly distort verse 16 and misunderstand the love of God. You will subtly put the emphasis in the wrong place and the entire verse can easily be misread to become one of the most man-centered and therefore soul-destroying verses in the Bible rather than what it is Clearly and plainly intended to be, that is one of the most radically God-centered and Christ-exalting verses in the Bible. Here's how such a mistake could happen. You could put the emphasis on the amount rather than the means. So when we're talking about the measure of God's love as our first sub-point under number one, We're not landing the accent mark on the word so. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's not where the accent mark lands. If you put the emphasis on the word so, you have perhaps unwittingly made the verse devastatingly man-centered. Because such a reading puts the weight of the verse on how much God loves you so much. Now, here's the problem with such a reading and with such an emphasis. You start, starting with the wrong presupposition, sentimentality, leads to asking the wrong questions, how much does God love the world, and inevitably ends with the wrong answer, answer being, he loves you so much. Now, before I discourage anybody with how much God loves you, or before you suppose that I think that He doesn't love you so much, let me say as clearly as I can that eternity will not suffice to explore the depths of the amount of God's love for you. I love you enough to tell you that there are gobs of verses in the Bible that exists to help us understand the height and length and depth and breadth of the love of God for us in Christ. There is nothing improper in the pursuit of the edges of the love of Christ. You should seek to find out how much He loves you, and there is nothing more exhilarating than doing a deep dive into the bottomless ocean seeking to touch the floor of the love of Christ for you. God through Jeremiah says to His people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. But this glorious verse is not about that. Mainly. Although it includes an answer about the magnitude of God's love, the accent mark doesn't land on so. It doesn't land on the magnitude. It lands on the means how he loves in other words what i'm trying to say is this verse is not about mainly how much god loved the world i love you so much rather its accent mark is on in what way he has loved the world how does god so love the world answer he gave his only begotten son that's the focus of the verse if you've been reading from the first chapter through the second now into the third our jaws should drop when we realize the extent to which god went to manifest his love the emphasis of on the verse is not on a nebulous quality or pardon me quantity of love so much rather it's on the means he gave his unique son now you know this verse. You've heard it. You can quote it. Somebody wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning from a dead sleep. You could probably recite it verbatim. Would you prayerfully think afresh about this expression of God's love? That God so loved the world that He gave heaven's favorite? He gave the one that the angels had praised since the moment that they were conceived and created. He gave the one who has reflected back to him from eternity the brilliance of his glory, as Hebrews chapter 1 would put it, the radiance of his glory, the one who is the exact representation of His nature according to Hebrews 1.3. The one that God gave to demonstrate His love for the world is none other than His unique, His one and only, His only begotten, His monogenes, His only begotten Son. This is the substance of His love. God gave God for you. That's love. Now that's the first That's a verse that uh, gloriously falls on the first Sunday of Advent for us in 2020. We couldn't have planned it this way. But God wants you to know that He loves you. Not only how much He loves you, but how He loves you. Friends, think about this. God could not have done anything to more clearly demonstrate His agape. That's the word in the verse. For you he gave his very best he gave his own dear son this verse is latent with promise it's the logic of heaven that we find in places like the book of romans in chapter 8 where we run into verses that are so gloriously true they're almost difficult to believe because they're so good and if they weren't written in the Bible, it would be impossible to believe. Think about this. God who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? The logic of heaven works this way. If God has already done the most difficult thing, given His Son to be delivered over, that's clearly death, For us all then we know he's going to do anything less difficult for his people so John in verse 16 of chapter 3 is underlying again this logic God loves the world so much how do we know he loves the world he gave the eternal logos of John 1 he gave the one who created the universe John 1. He gave the one who is the eternal light in John 1, who's the true tabernacle, the dwelling place of the full presence and manifest glory of God. He gave his best. So that glorious verse reminds us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How do you know God loves you? If you measure God's love for you subjectively, how you feel, how your day is going, what circumstances and hardships you go through, you're going to incessantly doubt God's love. But if you'll put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the rock-solid guarantee that Jesus the Lord is the standard, He's the definition by which you measure God's love, then you'll be able to sing verses like Romans 5. For while we were, past tense, yet sinners, God demonstrates, present tense, His love for us in that Christ died for us. How do you know God loves you? He gave Jesus, and Jesus went all the way to demonstrate God's love for you in His own death and resurrection. So, first, the measure of God's love is His Son. He has given you Heaven's favorite. Second, the object of God's love. This verse, again, is so familiar territory. It's hard to say it in a way that sounds fresh and arresting, but may God help me from trying to be novel and may God help us all to meditate the object of God's love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life the word world is replete in this passage it occurs three times in the very next verse verse 17 for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him so what's John talking about when he says God so loved the world well if you just do a survey of John's writings the gospel of John First, second third John revelation John's writings in the Bible you'll find he uses the word world three main ways one is to talk about a ball of dirt the earth another he would say the world and he would mean the world systems the evil regime of lost people and satan himself and all his minions evil world systems and then third he would use the word world to talk about humanity so the earth the world systems or people earlier in the gospel of john we find in chapter 1 verse 10 jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him do you hear how that's using the word world various ways in one verse He was in the world. The world was made through him. That's the ball of dirt and all it contains. And the world didn't know him. That's not the ball of dirt. That's the people on the planet. God so loved the world. Well, to understand what he's talking about in this verse, the same person who wrote that book that sentence, God so loved the world, wrote this sentence, Do not love the world. 1 John 2.15 So clearly he uses the word world in different ways. Many of you know where we stand as pastors and elders and as a church, therefore, on our understanding of God's total prerogative in salvation. And this verse... I do not believe, is seeking to parse out for us precisely which people God's talking about. Meaning, don't smuggle this verse into some theological system. John is not going to mince words as we continue to march on, chapter 6 in particular, about parsing people out. In this verse, I believe He wants you to be overrun by the avalanche of God hunting you down in His love and mercy. He's blanketing humanity, I believe, in the heart of God. And if you have any hesitation with this sentence, then I lovingly commend it to you. And if you say this sentence carelessly, then I lovingly commend it to you this sentence ought to cause you to be troubled and exhilarated at the same time god loves you nothing could be more absurd nothing should be more shocking to your ears but we live in a day that has so relegated the love of god to mere sentiment and Hollywood theatrics that we're not shocked and we're not riveted because we think down deep in our core, of course He loves me. Why wouldn't He love me? I mean, look at me. After all, I I can understand why God might not love him or her or them, but me? Of course He loves me. Which is reflective of a total ignorance of who God is and what sin is and what salvation costs. But I want to say to you unapologetically and without stuttering, and I mean it as deeply and biblically as I possibly can, even if it doesn't shock you, and it should, you are included among the objects of God's agape. God loves you. God loves you, and nothing else will ever melt your heart of stone until you get underneath the waterfall of that love. So the measure of God's love is that He sent His Son. The objects of God's love are the world and the intention, the intent of God's love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Oh, beloved, the intention of God's heart, the purpose, the plan, the design, the intent in sending His Son, was that all of the whosoever's in the world who would rest all their hope upon this one, His Son, who would believe upon the Lord Jesus, would have, present tense, eternal life. What does it mean to believe? Are we just talking about mental assent? I agree. Are we talking about some kind of rational logic? The Bible does not remove ration and logic and reason from faith, but that can't be all that it is. I love Richard Phillips' beautiful, biblical, faithful description of believing. Here's what he says. Faith is having our eyes open so that we see Jesus for who he is. Whoever believes, import Phillips' description, Whoever has their eyes open to see Jesus for who He is, has eternal life. They will not perish. Who is Jesus? What think ye of Christ? This is the question of questions. Have your eyes been opened to see Jesus for who He is? I'm not talking about the western, modern, lucky rabbit foot Jesus. I'm not talking about the pray your prayer, go to heaven when you die, live however you please from now to then, Jesus. I'm not talking about the Jesus of the 21st century that wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Have your eyes been opened to see Jesus, to quote Phillips again, for who He is. Whosoever will look upon Christ for who He is and entrust themselves to Him as your exclusive hope for life with God forever will never, ever perish. That's impossible. But is guaranteed to have eternal life. Believing on Jesus in verse 16 is dependent on what Jesus said in the previous verse. Verse 16 starts with the word for. For God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What did he just say in the previous verse? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. There's only two musts in the first 16 verses. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. How are you born again? The second must. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross and becomes a curse for you, takes your curse from God in your stead as your substitute, as a sacrifice in your place which God demands for our sins to be dealt with and for His honor to be upheld so that God still gets to remain God and become my friend. Jesus had to be lifted up. He had to be sacrificed, not for His sins, but for mine. God so loved the world that He gave His own begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, what Him, the hymn of verse 14 and 15, who was lifted up as a curse for me on the cross of Calvary and who rose again from the dead proving that God accepted His sacrifice even for a rebel as wicked as me. God is both just and justifier of anybody who has faith in Jesus. He doesn't have to stop being God to become my friend because Jesus is some kind of wonderful Savior. And if you'll trust Him, you'll never perish and you'll be saved. There's two wonderfully negative purpose statements in verse 16 and 17 about the sending of God's Son into the world. One is so that you would never perish. In light of verse 14 and 15, we can put it together this way. Jesus perished so that you would not have to. In verse 17, you'll never be judged. That is, condemned finally. Perish in hell forever. Will not happen to those who believe in the Son. Verse 17 tells us the reason that God did not send Jesus not to judge the world and the reason that he did send Jesus, but that the world might be saved through him. Not judge the world, that one ought to bother us too. The intent of God's love in sending his son, we're told in verse 17, is not to judge the world. Or verse 16, so that people would not perish. But if you just keep reading John's Gospel, you're going to have to have some answers for verse 17. Verse 17. Because chapter 5 verse 27 and chapter 9 verse 39, and I could give other examples, Jesus said he came to judge. But right here in verse 17 it says God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Later in the New Testament, Paul's going to mince no words in asserting that Jesus of Nazareth, the risen king of the universe who got up from the dead, is going to be the man, singular, that every person who's ever been born is going to be judged by. Acts 17. In the book of Revelation, John repeatedly argues that Jesus is the judge of all humanity. Verse 17 says he didn't come to judge the world. What does this mean? In this passage, I believe that the Holy Spirit is telling us through the pen of John The world was already condemned it was already judged before Jesus came he came to save hell-bound sinners and make them children of God but when he comes back again it'll be as the lion and not the lamb he will come according to Thessalonians to quote deal out retribution for all who do not obey the gospel he didn't come to condemn the world the first time It's the second half of verse 17. How glorious is this, but that the world might be saved through Him. I say the sentence I'm about to say at Grace Church a lot, and I know sometimes it starts to sound like white noise, but i just got to say it again. Nobody's ever going to be able to tell God He didn't do enough. Nobody in hell, nobody is going to be able to say to God, if you would have, then I would have. Nobody. He sent the glory house. He sent the temple. He sent the true sacrifice, the true high priest, the true prophet. He sent the true king who laid down his life. What king dies for his subjects, let alone his enemies? Kings throughout all human history have demanded that their own, who they thought were a threat to the throne, die in their stead. Kings throughout the ages, even down to this day, tyrannical leaders are slaughtering people by the masses because they think that they're a threat to their throne. But our king dismounted his throne willingly, came to the sin torn world, and died for his subjects. Nobody gets to say to God, You didn't do enough. Why did he send his son? so that a broken-hearted preacher could stand up in Memphis, Tennessee one day and say, God loves you. God loves you. Oh, how we want you to be saved. We don't manipulate the results. We can't produce or predict if we're going to have a baptism service with 15 college students next month. But I know this, anybody God ever saves is going to get saved the exact same way They're going to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God who gave His life for us. God's love to us. The second part is our love to Him. This is verses 18 to 21. It might sound strangely titled if you go read those verses. But verse 19 talks about love. And verse 20 talks about hate our love to God. Let your eyes fall again on verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Three aspects of of this portion. First is the glorious freedom of living after the verdict of God has already come in. Let me give you the second two and I'll come back to that one how impossible it is for lost people to live in light of God's love. And third, what a bliss of living underneath God's love so as to make God, not me, look glorious. Three aspects of love to God. The second is kind of a misnomer because it's the impossibility of living in love to God, but A, B, and C, A, first, the glorious freedom of living from an awareness that God's verdict is already in. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is, present tense, not Some translations say "condemned." This is a parallel to what verse sixteen is talking about. Not perish. He who believes in Jesus, use the word from verse sixteen: God's monogamous, God's only begotten. No judgment. Present tense is not judged. It's the idea of being condemned in a courtroom. What I'm calling this little subheading is the glorious, blissful freedom of living from an awareness that God's verdict is already in. Guess what the difference is between Christianity and every other lie? Every other lie that calls itself a religion that will make you right with God. The difference is this all other faith constructs, you either have to earn the favor of the deity and in most of them, you have to wait until the end to find out what the verdict will be. Did your good outweigh your bad? Were you religious enough? Christianity says, and this should take your breath away, the gavel's already been smashed at Calvary. The judge has already struck the mallet. Everybody who hopes in Jesus is not judged. Present tense. The verdict is already in. Now you're free to work from your salvation, not for it. You are free in the love of God because the verdict is already in. The gavel of heaven has already been smashed on his son at Golgotha for your crimes. You are now justified before God by faith in his son who is judged on your behalf. The anvil has been dropped on the king of glory, and God simultaneously stoops down and kisses you on the cheek and says, You're free. You're now free to obey. You're free to work from your salvation, not for your salvation, to know that you can love God from a position of total acceptance before Him, not to gain privileges with Him. Now this is so absurdly good that I'm going to try to say it a a different way, but it's going to sound like the same way I I always say it because I, I don't know another new way to say it. But it's too good not to listen to it again. True believers. Now, I don't want to make some Gnostic secret category. True believers. I'm just saying, if Jesus of Nazareth is your only hope before God, you are throwing yourself off a thousand-foot cliff into the arms of Jesus, saying, if Jesus of Nazareth does not save me, I'm going to hell forever because he's my only hope. That's what I'm talking about. True believers. True believers are so absurdly blessed. This is the thing I said I say all the time. I don't know how to say it better. True believers are so absurdly blessed. You cannot make God love you more. You can't improve upon His love for you. And do you want to know what ought to cause your head to spin? You can't make Him not only love you more, you can't make Him love you. Less, Jesus is the standard of God's love for you if you're a verse 16 believer if you have eternal life from hope in his son who was lifted up verse 15 on a cross as a curse for you who came into the world his incarnation verse 17 and 18 if you're believing in that Jesus then he's the standard of God's love for you so what then And this is how I pray, God, give me a fresh way to say it. I don't want to be novel. I just want to say what's here, but I want people to hear it, and they all know this passage, so it's going to be hard to say it in a way that they don't just nod their head and go home. So here's my best effort. If believing in Jesus means the judgment is already past, he who believes in Him is not judged, you are free in the love of God and you can't improve upon or diminish His love, then what's the highest crime in the universe? What's the greatest of all sins? It's being committed right now by most of the people alive on earth. It has been committed for an entire lifetime of almost every person who has ever lived on earth. It will be committed from birth until death by almost every person who is yet to be born. What is the highest crime in the universe that is being committed by huge swaths of humanity in every generation? It's in verse 18. Not believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If He's the only way to be made right with God, if He's the only way to have the standard of God's love for you guaranteed for eternity, to not perish, then to not believe is the highest crime you could commit. It's the same word, only begotten, monogenes. It's a different form of the same word in verse 18 and verse 16. Not believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Man, what a sobering insight into God's eternal vantage point. So many verses of the Bible, the vast majority of verses in the Bible are the human vantage point trying to see God. And oh, what a gift. But precious few of the verses are God's vantage point allowing us to see from His perspective. God who exists outside the confines of time, the eternal I am who lives in the eternal now, Verse 18 says, He who does not believe in his Son has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Judged by who? God. God's judgment, God's condemnation, present tense, already abides on everybody who does not believe in his Son. You're not born morally neutral. There are no good people. Everybody who doesn't believe in the name, you see that little phrase in verse 18? In the name of the only begotten Son of God is under God's judgment. Forever. They've been judged already because they would not believe in the name the anvil of God's judgment may not have fallen upon them finally yet, but it hangs by a spider's web thread over their head and their name is etched into the iron plate on the anvil and the only, only thing, if this sounds like hellfire brimstone, fear-mongering preaching, I just want to say, go read the rest of John. It gets worse. The only thing that prohibits the just execution of unbelievers right now is the sheer mercy of God the only reason unbelievers have breath in their lungs and beats in their heart who are headed for a Christless eternity in a very literal real place called hell forever is the mercy of God God is not slow concerning His promise, as some men count slowness. But He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why are these people judged? Verse 18. Because they have not believed in the name. In the name of the only begotten Son of God. God's name represents His character. In the Bible, you know, names had great significance. The multiplied dozens of names of God in the Bible reveal to us who he is, what he's like, what his character is like. Not believed in the name, not taken refuge in the name, not hidden in the name. It reminds us of the opening opening declaration in John's Gospel, chapter 1, where we're told, How Jesus makes people children of God. John 1.12 But as many as receive Him to them He gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in His name. Why was the Gospel of John written? The whole book. Many other signs Jesus performed but these have been recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. Why will the masses of humanity perish forever? According to verse 18, they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, verse 19 and 20 tells us that second aspect. In verse 21, the third aspect of Of love to God this is one that said that was ironic and it's it's just simply this it's impossible for believer unbelievers pardon me it is impossible for unbelievers to live in a way that basks in God's love verse 19 the judgment has come light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light the problem with the hearts of lost people is not that they don't love, but that they do vehemently love all the wrong things. It's like a fruit tree produces a certain kind of fruit. That's because of what it is. It cannot do otherwise. Lost people love their sin. Why do lost men and women and boys and girls love their sin? Because that's who they are. It's their nature. Like swine returning to the mire, Lost people love, love their sin. Verse 19 and 20 are an indictment on all who suppose themselves to be good people. As I said, lost people love their sin. According to verse 19, they relish the darkness. They wish that Christ had never come. They do not want the light. Darkness is their sin choice companion. They would rather coddle, according to this passage, their evil deeds in the darkness than to live in the light of Christ in his presence. Verse 19 tells us plainly that the judgment of unbelievers is this, they love darkness rather than light. And the light is not just an abstract series of wavelengths of photons, it's Jesus. They love darkness rather than Jesus. They don't love light. They don't love Him. They don't love His presence. They don't love purity and holiness and all that God grants to us in His enabling grace to live for His glory. Lost people do not love Jesus. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The light John's writing writing about is the same light he was talking about in chapter 1. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. Or John 1.9, there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, exposes everybody. Do you want to know what God says is the reason that lost people love darkness and won't come to the light? Twofold. Verse 20, they hate the light. And verse 20, they fear their deeds being exposed. That's the bottom line. They hate the light. That's God's word. Lost people are not indifferent to Jesus. They hate him. The only difference between us and the crowds that cried for his crucifixion is that we would have done it earlier and more vehemently. Lost people who don't entrust themselves to the Lord Jesus hate him. Verse 20, they hate the light and they hate him because they have a love of self which fundamentally manifests itself in fear of their evil deeds being exposed i have very very bad news today for people who will not believe in the name of god's only begotten son and have eternal life twofold number 1 you're going to stand right in front of him it's this jesus whom you hate whose light you don't want who you will not be able to escape hebrews 4 revelation 1 i could go on say it says that jesus is the very one before whom you will stand. Number two, you will be fully exposed. Acts 17, through a righteous man, the risen Lord Jesus. So hating Him and loving darkness are not going to end well for anybody because everyone is going to stand in front of what Revelation 1 calls His eyes of fire. And will be judged by Him. Lost people love darkness and hate light because they're dead in their trespasses and sins and it's impossible for them to live unto God because they're spiritually dead. Finally, people who know God's love not only live free because the verdict is already in, Christ was crushed at Calvary and now we're free to live from our salvation, not for it, but finally, Such people who know they're loved by God love to live in a way that shows how glorious God is. I was going to say live in a way that makes God look glorious, but I don't want anybody to misunderstand. He is glorious. People who know his love want everybody to see how glorious he is. That's verse 21. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Why do we come to the light? so that our deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Why do we come to the light? So that everybody can see that God is the one who's done the work. This is the Christian life. This is the blessed life. It's not lived perfectly by any Christian. Christians aren't good people who know how to live life in a clean way. Christians are loved people who have the supply needed to live in a God-honoring way which comes from God. The lifestyle of coming to the light is evidence that truth is loved and lived upon, that Jesus is believed upon. The phrase in the New American Standard in verse 21, he who practices the truth, that's just a a Semitic way, New Testament culture way of saying living faithfully, living according to God's word. He who walks in accord with the word of God loves to come to the light because that person wants God to get the glory for empowering us to live in a way that that honors him so the ultimate reason people who are born again walk faithfully according to God's word and love the light and therefore habitually keep coming to the light you you gravitate toward what you love the reason we just keep coming to the light and walk faithfully according to God's word is according to verse 21 because we love to bring glory to our God This is what Jesus talked about, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and God gets the glory. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So when anything good is accomplished through a believer, God's children have an involuntary impulse. When anything good, spiritually good, truly good, God-honoringly good is accomplished in and through somebody who believes upon the Lord Jesus Such people, God's children, want everybody to know that's a result of God working in me. That's God's enabling grace. That's not me being a good person. That's God at work in me. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Do you see how radically God-centered love? God, he didn't consult with anybody. He loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son. How this radically God-initiated love in giving Christ to die in our stead and to be raised again for our everlasting life, do you see how this radically God-initiated love is radically God-centered in the lives of His people? In verse 21. So that His deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So, I stop here a heart that was once dead and hated the light and loved evil, that's what the passage says, is now somehow bursting with life unto God, regeneration, love to Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the wind blowing, nourished by the truth, obedient from the heart unto God so that all of life is now a living testimony, a sacrifice that we belong to him. How does that happen? John's word is, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus. The one who in verse 14 was lifted up as a curse so that you could be healed. The one in verse 15 is the definition of God's love for you. The one in whom God promises that if you will hope in Him, you will never perish, you will never be condemned. Verse 16, 17, and 18. You'll have the light of Christ's presence available to you always. You can live in the light and in verse 19 and 21, ultimately you can live in a way that shows how great and glorious your God is until you get to be in his presence forever. That's why we entitled this whole sermon series Believe and Live. That's what the Gospel of John is about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Oh, don't let us miss Jesus. Don't let us know some Bible passages or some Bible verses and not know Jesus. Thank you for Jesus and I pray, Lord, that any who do not know the true Jesus will throw themselves on his mercy this day that will run to the risen Jesus today. I pray that you would cause people to be born again today. And all who know him, oh, how I ask that you would empower your children by your Holy Spirit to live in the light, to come to the light so that everybody can see that our life is a testimony, that our deeds are being wrought in God, that you're the one at work in us for your glory. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. What wondrous love is this? that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to lay aside His crown for my soul. Oh God, would You cause us all to hope in Him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close by singing the doxology again and then our brother will conclude our service. Will you lead us? Thank you.